Hi guys, this is God Besotted and I'm Karina. I'm so happy that you're here. Thank you for listening to another episode of this podcast. I think that today's episode is going to be very encouraging. I hope and pray that it is going to be encouraging. We're going to talk about loneliness, lament. We're going to talk about prayer and how thanksgiving stirs up thankfulness in our hearts. I think it's going to be timely and hopefully very soul nourishing. So with that, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, We're going to be in Psalm 142 today, so let's get into it. So I want to start out a little bit differently than usual. Instead of turning first to our text, which is Psalm 142, I want to tell you just a little fun fact about me. Um, and those who know me already, of course, are aware of this fun fact. But uh, if you don't, then here's some news for you. It's very important. Uh, I'm a middle child. So if if you didn't know, psychologists actually debate about something that's called middle child syndrome. They debate about whether this syndrome exists and if so, what effects birth order has on middle children. And middle child syndrome is basically the idea that if you are neither the oldest child nor the youngest child, then you get less attention from your parents and you feel kind of caught in the middle and this results in other traits like feeling overshadowed and being rebellious or uh, just being very very much peacemakers, etc., etc. There are various traits which those who believe in middle child syndrome say will manifest themselves in middle children with this syndrome. So... Growing up, I always said I wasn't I wasn't really a middle child. Um, I, I felt like because I am the youngest of three, I, I have two older siblings, uh, that, you know, I was sort of almost a youngest child. And then I felt that since I'm the oldest of three, I have two younger siblings, that I was kind of an older child. So I, I used to say, and and I said this all the time, I was a I was kind of a unique case. I was not really like other middle children. Uh, I was unlike uh, these other kids. And it wasn't until I was well into my college years uh, that I realized that this was precisely the the sort of thing that middle children with middle child syndrome do. <laughs> For example, um, a WebMD article, and those of you who are hypochondriacs, God bless you, you love WebMD, and you know, I has a dear place in my heart as well. They have an article called What to Know About Middle Child Syndrome. And it ends with this statement. It says, if middle child syndrome is real, it might be the middle child's sense of their own uniqueness that has led to many discoveries, important theories, and social movements. So if, if you got that, WebMD says, if this is even a thing, it's middle children's own sense of uniqueness that has catapulted it and, and led to its development. Um, it's us thinking we're different that has made it a thing. So I can definitely vouch for that. And I'm here to tell you and WebMD that middle child syndrome is real. It is it is a real problem. And, <laughs> and I've been plagued by it all my life. The best defense that I can give you is anecdotal, and it's a Sunday afternoon uh, when I was around nine or ten years old. Maybe I was eleven. Uh, for backstory, I'm a pastor's kid, and for those of you whose parents were in ministry, are in ministry, you know that there's a flurry of activity that goes on uh, on any given Sunday. And so, being one of five children. I was just one of many things, I'm sure, to keep track of on a Sunday. And so on this particular Sunday, church had ended. And for whatever reason, I just felt really 
down. I just felt really depressed. I felt very lonely. And I went into one of the back rooms of the church. There were several um, rooms that we used for Sunday school, for youth rooms, you know, prayer meetings. And uh, in one of them, there was a pool table. And I went, I went back there and I laid underneath it and sort of stared at, stared at the bottom of the pool table from underneath. And, and I just stayed there for a while. And I just had this deep sense of certainty that no one was going to come looking for me, that no one was even going to notice that I was gone. And I just had this, this feeling of loneliness. Somebody has said that feeling lonely is not being alone. It's the feeling that no one cares. And so with my heart just pounding and, and I'm just sure that they're going to prove me right, I, I'm laying there and minutes, minutes go by. And sure enough, when I emerge from underneath the table, I discovered to my to my dismay and to my horror that my family had left me at church <laughs> and uh so even though i had expected it and i felt this strong sense of certainty that this is what was going to happen to me i almost couldn't believe it it confirmed for me my sense of of feeling left out and being overlooked and it's something that i now believe in my wisdom 25 years old i, I believe stemmed from being a middle child of a big family and uh, for those who are worried Another family from church kindly drove me home and delivered me back to my unbothered parents. So all's well that ends well, I guess. <laughs> my parents were basically like, oh, there you are. Uh, <laughs> so that is my story. That is my proof. Uh, WebMD, the jury is out for them, but it is not for me. I know the middle child syndrome is real. I know that it exists and I know that I am in recovery from it. <laughs> now, while all of us may not have hidden from their families and then gotten indignant when their families didn't find them, <clears throat> like I did. All of us have been lonely. Uh, in preparation for this this episode, I went looking for quotes on loneliness, and there is no shortage of them. I ended up sticking with one that I had in a journal from a while back that I've always liked, and it's by a German-Jewish psychologist uh, who fled the Nazis. His name's Eric Fromm, and he writes in his book, The Art of Love, this statement. He says, the deepest need of man is the need to overcome his separateness, to leave the prison of his aloneness. And so loneliness has to do more with the feeling of being alone than actually being alone. And as the holiday season is approaching and the days are getting shorter and colder, unless you're in South Florida, uh, loneliness is it's kind of like an ache in our bones, at least for me. You may have friends or people around you, but there's this perpetual sense that you are alone, that no one cares, that no one is paying attention. Almost like you could hide underneath a pool table for hours and no one would come looking for you. David, the king, the psalmist, and uh, the of prefigurement of Christ, he was no stranger to loneliness. In Psalm 142, he describes his loneliness in a lament, a prayer, which looks to God for rescue from what he calls the prison of his aloneness. And so I want to look at Psalm 142. We'll break it up into three parts and just dissect what David's prayer means for us today and how we can be encouraged by the way he encouraged his own soul during that dark moment in time. So with that, let's read Psalm 142, and then we'll talk about it. Psalm 142, Maskell of David, when he was in the cave, a prayer. I cry aloud with my voice to the Lord. I make supplication with my voice to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. 
I declare my trouble before him. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my path. In the way where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, for there is no one who regards me. There is no escape for me. No one cares for my soul. I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Give heed to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring my soul out of prison, so that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Such a beautiful psalm, and uh, I just want to dig right into it. So, beginning with the title, it says, Maskell of David when he was in the cave, a prayer. So, this is one of a few psalms of David that have historical instances attached to them, superscriptions that tell us exactly where David was and what he was going through when he wrote this prayer. For example, Psalm 51 describes David's repentance after he commits adultery with Bathsheba and Nathan the prophet uh, confronts him about it. This one says, a mascal of David when he was in the cave. Now, when he was in the cave could refer either to 1 Samuel 22 or 1 Samuel 24. Uh, Regardless of which instance, David was hiding in caves when he was fleeing from the king, Saul, who sought his life. So we know that this was written early in David's life and prior to David's kingship. He had been anointed as king, but he had not yet assumed that role in any official sense. And so he writes while he is on the run for his life from someone who had served as a mentor for him, someone who he regarded as the Lord's anointed, as someone who was given special authority and endowed with the preeminent responsibility of caring for God's people, Israel. And so this is written while David's on the run from someone he dearly respects. And uh, he is in the middle of a very, a very truly life-threatening situation. More specifically, though, scholars identify and categorize this psalm as a lament. Laments are the most common type of psalm, and they follow a similar pattern usually. They involve a cry for help from Yahweh, from the Lord, and then kind of an expression of certainty that Yahweh will respond, or an expression of confidence that he will rescue, that he will deliver and answer the prayer, and then sometimes, many times at the end, a vow of thanksgiving. And we do have an expression by David at the end of the psalm that he wants to give thanks to Yahweh for the deliverance that he prays will come. So it is a lament, and it can be separated into three sections, and we're going to look at it in these three sections as sort of three different points. Verses 1 through 2, David comes before God. Verses 3 through 4 is David's complaint, and verses 5 through 7 express David's confidence. So we'll look at the points in that order. So let's start with verses 1 and 2. They say, I cry aloud with my voice to the Lord. I make supplication with my voice to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare my trouble before him. It's interesting because the commentary I read describes these verses as an initial appeal using the formal third person. You'll notice that David says, I cried aloud to the Lord. He doesn't say, I cried aloud to you. And the commentary noted just in passing that this was often done when addressing kings. 
When we look at this psalm in its context, we know already the historical context that David was on the run from King Saul. Although David had been appointed and anointed as the next king of Israel, he wasn't yet, and he was on the run for his life from the current king of Israel. But David addresses God as king. He knew, even in the midst of his circumstance, as difficult as it was, who was really king, who was really in charge, and who possessed all power. Moreover, he addressed God with the respect that is due him as God, as the sovereign over all God should be addressed with respect. And so David comes into the Lord's presence saying, I cried aloud to the Lord. He addresses God formally at first in a way that denotes respect and um, the respect that's due God as king. Nonetheless, he does come before God, although respectfully, very boldly. The word for complaint, which he uses in verse 2, he says, I pour out my complaint before him. It denotes one commentary says deep vexation and anxiety it's the same word used when hannah who was samuel's mother goes before god with anguish and it's used often of the trials of job so david comes before god with a serious situation something that was extremely vexing and pressing upon his heart and he comes respectfully addressing God as king, but he also comes with boldness. And this is the same way that we are to approach God through Christ. We are still to approach God with the fear that is due him, but we have boldness and confident access through his spirit to God. And so this is a model for us in prayer. David's David's example here is a good model for us. The last thing I'll say about this section that was very striking to me is that David almost, um, he builds upon his 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 description of his need. He says, beginning with verse one, I cry aloud. And then he says, I make supplication. I have a request. Then he says, I pour out my complaint. Then he says, I declare. He's coming before God with a matter of greatest urgency. And it reminds me of something that I've kept with me. I'm not sure where I first heard it, but it was basically the, the, injunction not to talk about something more than you pray about it and this seems to be what David is doing he is he has no lack of words for what he needs to bring before God he has so many things that he needs to say that he says it four times I cry aloud I make supplication I pour out my complaint I declare my trouble David went first and foremost to God to describe his plight he wasn't talking to his men who were with him there in the cave he wasn't talking to his mom through letters or anything like that he went straight to God and so we have this example to come before God respectfully yet boldly and to come before God first not after we've talked to 10 people about how difficult our work situation is not after we've written you know angry thoughts in seven journals but first David comes before God first and foremost to describe his complaint So, David's complaint, just what exactly is he complaining about? Well, verse 3 and 4 say, When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my path. In the way where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, for there is no one who regards me. There is no escape for me. No one cares for my soul. Before David even gets to his complaint, he reminds the Lord and himself of the Lord's past faithfulness. He said, When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, When I was anxious, when I almost fainted with anxiety, 
you knew my path. The NIV puts it, you watch over my way. God, in his all-knowing power, is not only aware of us, but he is intimately involved with all of our ways. He knows each footstep. He knew our path. And so, knowing that David, uh, or knowing that God knew his path, David says, in the way where I walk, in my path, they have hidden a trap for me. He doesn't describe who they is but in this part, but later on he's going to say that he has persecutors that are too strong for him. His enemies have hidden a trap for him. Psalm 57, which is also written during uh, at the time when David was hiding in the cave, it has the same historical superscription, also describes a trap uh, that David's enemies had laid for him. And this is because Saul was chasing after him and had people telling him where David was whenever David's uh, whereabouts were found out. And Saul was always trying to ambush him and catch him. And so David describes that situation by saying, they have hidden a trap for me. But his real problem is not merely that he has a cunning enemy. Uh, His real problem is that he is lonely. He says, look to the right and see, for there is no one who regards me. There is no escape for me. Two things about this section. The fact that God knows our path means that we are never off the grid to God. We are never in uncharted territory to God. The unknown to us is not unknown to God. And I say that as something that you probably know, but you need to feel when you are in a season of loneliness. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, beautifully describes God's omniscience and the practical impact that that has on us as believers. He says, how unutterably sweet is the knowledge that our Heavenly Father knows us completely. No talebearer can inform on us. No enemy can make an accusation stick. No forgotten skeleton can come tumbling out of some hidden closet to abash us and expose our past. No unsuspected weakness in our characters can come to light to turn God away from us, since he knew us utterly before we knew him and called us to himself in the full knowledge of everything that was against us. David knew that God's omniscience meant he was known intimately by God. God knew David's situation. He was aware of it in an intimate sense. But more than that, he was never off the grid to God. More than that, he was not anonymous to God. David felt alone against an enemy. He felt boxed in. He felt unsafe. He felt unloved. He says, there is no one who regards me. There is no escape for me. No one cares for my soul. The issue was not who he was surrounded by so much as a feeling that he was alone. He needed to be reminded that the Lord was with him. The Lord knew his path and he was not anonymous. He was not some some random person claiming to be anointed, hiding in the caves, being made fun of and laughed at by Saul. He was anointed. He was important. He had a purpose and God knew his path. So in the midst of David's complaint, we also find encouragement that he gives himself, which encourages us in seasons of loneliness and seasons of um, being pressed in or hemmed in. And so here we come to the last point or the last section, David's confidence in verses five through seven. They say, I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Give heed to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. 
Bring my soul out of prison so that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. There's so much in here, but let's just draw out a couple more important points that uh, we can learn from David and his pattern of prayer here. In verse 5, I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. David reminds God how he has sought him. But he doesn't just remind God. He reminds himself that he had no safe place, no refuge but God. He had no inheritance, no portion but God. He had no hope but God, no kindness but God. The CEB, the Contemporary English Bible, renders portion this way. It says, you are all I have. In the land of the living. David felt lonely. He felt bereft. He felt uh, hemmed in. In that place where David felt his total inability to confront his situation in his own power. In that place where David recognized fully and forcefully his own inadequacy. He recognized God as being the only adequate help for him in this situation. God was his refuge and his portion. Sometimes seasons of loneliness and seasons of being undone are opportunities for us to recognize that God is all we have. And if he's not, we have nothing. With him, we have everything we need. But if not, we don't have anything. No strength, no safe place, no hope, no kindness none that lasts. And so David prays again, give heed to my cry for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors for they are too strong for me. Bring my soul out of prison so that I may give thanks to your name. The last thing I want to say by way of encouragement, especially if you are in a season of loneliness, is to notice the way David frames this section. He says, bring my soul out of prison rescue me from this pit, uh, not only this physical place where he was in a cave, but also the emotional stronghold where he found himself. Bring my soul out of prison so that I may give thanks to your name. This is a lament and it does follow a similar structure of other laments moving from a plea to a prayer to a praise. But David doesn't quite come full circle the way he does in Psalm 57. Like I said before, Psalm 57 was written during the same time period of David's life while he was in the cave. And in that Psalm, David expresses confidently his intention to praise God. He says, I will praise. Yes, I will sing praise. Yes, I will I will praise God, my glory. And he calls on different instruments to join him in praising God. That one is a much more gleeful, joyful expression of thanksgiving at the end of that lament and that prayer. But in this psalm, we don't quite get that. We just get an ask for deliverance, a prayer for deliverance, and then an intention. He says, bring my soul out of prison so that I may give thanks to your name. I think David wasn't quite at the place Although he's expressing his confidence in God, he wasn't quite at the place that he could give thanks. He wanted to give thanks to God for his deliverance, but he couldn't yet. In Psalm 57, he could, but when he wrote this one, he just couldn't bring himself there. And I think that, I can't speak for everyone, but I I have found myself in that situation often. When you know what you should do, especially when what you should do involves an emotional response to God, a joy in God, and you simply can't bring yourself to feel that joy. 
you do the right things and you do them out of a desire to please God, but that joy isn't quite there. The thanksgiving isn't quite there. And I like this quote from Richard Baxter in this context, and I think it applies to what David says here. Richard Baxter says, resolve to spend most of your time in thanksgiving and praising God. If you cannot do it with the joy that you should, yet do it as you can. You have not the power of your comforts, but have you no power of your tongues? Say not that you are unfit for thanks and praises unless you have a praising heart and were the children of God. For every man, good and bad, is bound to praise God and to be thankful for all that he hath received and to do it as well as he can rather than leave it undone. Doing it as you can is the way to be able to do it better. Thanksgiving stirreth up thankfulness in the heart. What Richard Baxter is saying that at times we need to praise although we don't feel the joy of our praise. We need to give thanks although we don't feel thankfulness. And I think what David is doing is just that. He's reminding himself and the Lord, I cried to you. I said, you are my refuge and you are my portion. You're my safe place and you are enough for me. You are my inheritance. And he's praying that God would listen to his cry, that he would deliver him not only from his persecutors but from the loneliness the soul prison where he found himself so that he could give thanks he was expressing confidence in the moment that God had delivered him in the past but he wanted to express so much more confidence and thankfulness based on the deliverance that he prayed God would grant him and so if you find yourself in a season of loneliness and it is difficult to to stir up the affections that you wish were there. Don't be discouraged by that. Know that your desire for the affections to be there marks you as a true believer, not as a hypocrite who's going through the motions without the affections, but as a true believer who has that seed of faith and is wanting to cultivate it and cause it to blossom and grow. And it might be that in this season, it's harder to do that than in other seasons. But as Richard Baxter says, thanksgiving stirs up thankfulness in the heart. Continuing to give thanks, continuing to express our confidence in God, continuing to pray and praise brings us to that uh, feeling of affection that we're lacking, that we're missing. And so we come to the last phrase of this section, David's confidence, the capstone of the psalm. It says, the righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. And I think it's so beautiful that this is the ending to David's psalm. David pours out his complaint before God, and it's that he has a cunning enemy and he has persecutors, but more importantly, that he feels deeply, soul-achingly lonely. He feels that there is no one who cares for him, no one who regards him. And so his expression of faith is his statement of faith at the end of the psalm is so apropos it says the righteous will surround me for you will deal bountifully with me David looks forward to a time when his prayer that is born out of loneliness will be answered and that he'll be surrounded with a community of faith the righteous will surround him and so I wanted to end with just a little bit more encouragement on this note uh, this was a verse that I I forgot was here I forgot where it was, but I have carried it with me since I started college. One of my most often repeated prayers in college was, may the righteous surround me. And I was discouraged when I started college because I expected... I expected a community of righteous and I found myself uh, just kind of dismayed and feeling alone and not knowing when my people would show up. And um, 
two years into college, I remember writing in my journal and saying to the Lord, I can't believe that I'm saying this, but the righteous surround me. And the righteous are the same people that you put in my path day three of college, day four, week three, the people that you put in my path early on when my path seemed dismal, when my path seemed lonely as David's did. These are the same people surrounding me now. And I was able to say to the Lord, you have dealt bountifully with me. And fun fact, I married one of those people. So praise God for that. Uh, (laughs) So thank you for sticking with me. That is Psalm 142. And it's a great encouragement for us when we are in a season of loneliness. Uh, And loneliness is feeling uh, like no one cares about you. It isn't being alone necessarily like I wasn't alone in college, but it's feeling lonely. And David beautifully illustrates how we can go before God as king, respectfully yet boldly. And we can bring our complaints before God, trusting that he has known our path in the past and he knows our steps in the future. And despite feeling lonely. He is our refuge. He is our strength and our portion. And I hope that we can come to the place if we are in a season of loneliness, that we can come to a similar expression of faith that David did, that the righteous will surround us, that the life of faith is meant to be lived in a community of faith. And God deals bountifully with us. He provides those people for us at the right time. They might even be people that are already in your life who you haven't uh, looked at yet, uh, who you haven't noticed yet. So I'm praying that the Lord does surround you and covers you with his love during a season of loneliness and that he would also surround you with people who can support you and who can remind you how to give thanks when you don't feel thankful, who can remind you how to find joy when you feel like you're in a pit. And so that is Psalm 142. Again, thanks for sticking around. And next week we will we will have another episode. So thanks for joining me. I'm Karina and this was God Besotted.